0: Twenty minutes from now, we'll be finished.
1: Yeah. No, 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 no! Darn it! We're going to do it right this time, Dave. Uh, Jeb, when I was down there, remember we watched this Nova special on TV. Right, right. This is oh, bomb- you guys saw that too? Bombing Hitler's yeah. dams. Yeah, and and uh-huh. Jeb and I watched probably a grand total of four hours of television in three weeks that I was down there. But one of the hours was this documentary. It, it was kind of interesting, actually, huh? It was the. uh... <sighs>
0: I don't call it lead character. The lead uh, researcher, the the guys, the guy whose brainchild this project was, really started to get on my nerves after a while.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know a little bit. Huh?
0: <laughs> but um, um, the archival footage was good. The, the, the way they told the story, that was good. Um, there was obviously, uh, you know, some some license taken, you know, trying to, you know, recreate this with a DC four versus a uh, uh, Lancaster or something like that, but mm-hmm. overall, uh, it, it was it was very good. And I think especially the guys from from uh, ice pilots NWT, did a great job.
1: They really did. They really uh, did. They
0: really, they really did. And and uh, Arnie can fly me anywhere, anytime.
1: Yeah, yeah. There you go, Absolutely. Well, anytime it's greater than minus forty degrees. But uh... well, there,
2: he,
0: he, he, if I was in f- minus forty degree weather, I would want Arnie available to fly me. <laughs>
3: okay i think i agree yeah i think i agree um they they weren't doing this damn buster thing in that bad weather
1: no no I mean, no, temperature no, wise. no no no, no, no right. they look like they're having a good time now now david we actually missed the first few minutes of the documentary and uh and so we didn't get to see the part that set up the i mean i sort of know the story but i didn't hear the way they told
3: it david did you hear did you watch the whole doc documentary i believe we did but i'd have to go back and watch it you know to start the the thing to remember what it was in that first few minutes because I kept overlaying parts of this that they showed in the Nova special with uh, uh, visions in my mind from the uh, World War II era movie that was done about this before the war was even over. Right, right. (laughs) Right. Now, so the story here is –
1: this is a mission or a series of missions from World War II. They wanted to uh, take out uh, a dam, or uh, I don't know if there was just one mission and one dam, but... One, no, there were four four or five dams. Yeah, and so they wanted to take out these dams, and apparently it wasn't as simple as dropping a bomb on the dam for some reason. Um, so, they, so this one particular guy, way back during World War II, came up with this idea of of flying and dropping the bomb in such a way that it skipped across the water and then kind of came to a rest right in front of the face of the dam and sunk and then exploded at the right depth in order to really do maximum damage and take out the dam. Mm -hmm. And it turns out this is quite an engineering uh, feat uh, and flying feat. And boy, in just about every different way you can imagine to get it to do this, you have to – you know, you have to fly a particular route, drop the bomb at a particular point, at a particular height, uh, at a particular you have sh- speed. Yeah, it, that's right. You have to actually spin, and apparently this is the key thing to the whole, as I understood it, that you actually spin the bomb so that it's so that it's rotating when it skips across the water, and that. Right. Other,
0: otherwise, it'll just you know, make like a. Um, Iraq. Yeah. So it makes a couple of skips and sinks. A couple of times, but
1: sink. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, they, they trying to make this actually work in practice with real, you know, military aircraft and real ammunition. And, uh, and, and so this, uh, now, so now we this contemporary group, the uh, gentleman who got on Jeb's nerves, uh, who was the head of a team that were trying to recreate this whole thing. And, uh, and, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, all the things they had to go through, I, I was a little dubious. They were going to pull it off. um, but uh i was too actually um um oh you mean
3: in the in the nova documentary yeah in the in the modern yeah. day
1: recreation we were a little mm-hmm. dubious um one of the things that jeb and i kept yelling at the tv about as i recall was uh so they were talking about spinning this this uh bomb on i mean and spinning it really fast i mean we're like yeah. talking like gyroscope speeds here all right and it, and and the the mock bomb was a sort of largish uh cylindrical thing and uh and I think Jeb and I both. I know I sort of had this image. This is before the uh, the uh, uh, the ice pilot guys arrived, and I sort of had this image that they were going to drop it from like you know I don't know what a King Air or some mid-sized GA aircraft, and and I had this image of spinning this gyroscopic thing underneath a relatively you know medium-sized airplane, and it was just going to wreak havoc with the ability to control yeah. it and fly it yeah. and whatnot. Um, yeah. Jim,
0: I, I, my, my mental image was was, you know, trying to do this
1: underneath my debonair. And you, you're going to do that once. Yeah, exactly right. You know, <laughs> I mean, you can get the thing spinning. But once you get it spinning, your, your debonair ain't turning. <laughs> it's no, going to go it straight. It's, it's right. not going to pitch up, down, left, right. It's just going to keep going. Um but then they well, used a the much, much larger you know, part,
3: airplane, which made it a little more plausible. And uh, you, you mentioned the gyroscopic effect of the the spin on the on the uh, the bomb, and you, you know part of the reason was to extend the skip that they would get, like you talked right, about, right? Because if they got it at the right altitude and the right speed, uh, it would kind of just it would skip along pretty good as it was, but they could control the skip much better, right? And get much more out of it with it spinning. But the only way that they could get it to the water straight, so that it would skip, was to spin it. Mm-hmm. it had to have that gyroscopic stability, like a bullet on its trajectory. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, when you let go of it, it immediately started to tip. Right, right. And so it would dig in one edge or the other at at some kind of odd angle, and it might skip once or twice, like you guys said. But there was no way to predict it, no way to control it. uh... It The the whole thing was an exercise in engineering control more than anything, how to control the height.
2: But then there was some
1: pretty fancy flying that had to go on, too, both in the recreation and even more so back in in World War II. Uh, They had to drop this thing from a very precise distance above the water, and they had to drop it a very precise distance away from the dam. Um, in order to get the skips to all come out that's right.
3: that 's the control points that I'm talking about, and it's there's solutions to that that I think are minor genius absolutely because absolutely. they are such yeah. simple simple solutions yeah but
1: yeah, but it must have been hard to so that some solutions in in the recreation they did it in daylight on a nice day, and they put floating mark colorful markers in the water of this reservoir that they were using as their sample
3: right that 's to get the line on that
1: right. And that was hard enough. They had a little bit of a challenge making that work in daylight where you could see these great big colorful things. Back in World War II, they had to do it in the middle of the night when it was dark. You really can't see the surface of the water. And and like David says, so they came up in order to judge the height above the water because remember, they didn't have really great, you know, radar altimeters or whatnot, or any radar altimeters Right, and the altimeters
3: then. they had weren't that right. sensitive.
1: And they did this fascinating thing where they took two spotlights and they shined them down from the airplane at, at, a, at a pre-calculated angle such that the two, you know, sort of circles of light, the two spots would would uh, superimpose on each other when they were at precisely the right height. You're right, David. That's just kind of genius, isn't it? That, that, uh, yeah, it's... It's so simple. Yeah. But think about yeah. how hard it would be to actually do that, though. I mean, you are got to fly along, you know, and somebody, I don't know whether the pilots are watching these two beams of light or whether there was somebody, some spotter in the aircraft watching the beams. No, I think I think navigator, in the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They, they got plenty of crew members not doing a whole lot of other things right there. But, you know, the other thing going on here, you're shining two beams of light out from underneath the airplane. Why don't you just put a big sign or banner yeah. behind the airplane saying exactly. "shoot at me"?
2: Exactly.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the light had to be kind of shielded and and angled in a way that it didn't didn't show you know didn't spotlight the airplane, and then they used this little simple forked stick thing to pick up the two towers on the dams. Yes. Mm-hmm. Another. So that when it, thing. when everything got in line, that was the proper distance from the dam to release the bomb. Yeah. And there was just mm-hmm. enough light that night for them to be able to make out those against some kind of background. But that was what they did, the little, just a little stick with a V on the front and mm-hmm. a pin on each stick point, a triangle, uh, like simple trigonometry, geometry, uh, engineering. But somebody had to conceive of the idea to make that all work. And that's, mm-hmm. to me, is the most brilliant part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing
1: stuff, and uh, and there was some fun flying in the in the documentary. Uh, that was that was fun to watch. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it was a pretty cool documentary. Uh, people should check it out. It's, it was a Nova episode,
3: uh, and it was called "Bombing Hitler's Dams." Oh, well, if you if you like me, if you've ever seen the movie that was made, I believe it was nineteen forty four uh, about the, called the Dam Busters, right? Uh, a British movie, uh, you know, made while the war was still going on. Uh, there's footage from the actual experiments uh, that made it into the Nova documentary that were not part of the wartime movie. That are a couple of them are major eye openers to see because you're you're about to watch people get killed. Yeah, yeah. yeah there were a couple of right. Uh, yeah, there were a couple that were really disturbing. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, you look at those and go, you know, poor sob. They nothing they could do. I mean they they were along for the ride at the point that the incident occurred. So yeah. uh-huh. when you watch this, you, you know, you'll notice the difference between the real stuff uh from 1942 and the new documentary stuff. That won't be hard to detect. Just kind of be prepared for the idea that there's going to be a couple of loops in there that are going to send you for a loop. Yeah. But yeah. it's fantastic stuff. It was yeah. it was really good stuff. Check it out.
1: Hey, welcome, folks, to episode two hundred and seventy-three of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. you are gonna be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not—it's it's not really noise. Good background noise. That's yeah, right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We yeah. got skywriters now. We got skywriters now. We got Skyriders now. Sky they, now. They, <laughs> it, does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got a runway in the front yard.
3: (laughs) And you're in sight. Clear last. Turkey, vegetable ground. Good
2: afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta.
1: Recording this episode on Friday evening, or late afternoon, uh, February 10th, 2012. And joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends. Uh, Dave Higdon's here, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David,
3: how are you doing? Just wonderful. Just wonderful. It's marvelous. And thanks to the Laker for uh, making sure that we remember to talk about this. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a good story.
1: Uh, good documentary, I mean. So uh, what's going on in Wichita? How's everything out there?
3: Did you guys get that snow that Colorado got hit by? Did that make it to you? Oh, man, you wouldn't believe it. It was coming down for minutes, and I got out the micrometer, but it it didn't last long enough to measure. Oh, uh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> just i don't know family podcast
1: uh speaking of things, uh, <laughs> speaking of things too small uh, no, no, to measure no, 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 no. Uh, my other good friend here is Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota Florida hi jeb i'm sorry i apologize it was just it was too easy to resist
0: yeah i get that you, you, you got to have a segue in it, you know, <laughs> i know i need it yeah. You, yeah. with your preoccupation on such things i can't yeah, how are you doing? What's going on? But uh, no, we're, we're I'm fine. I'm once again basking in the glow of, of putting to bed another issue of Aviation Safety Magazine, and uh, looking forward to a quiet weekend and uh, you know hit the ground running again
1: next week. Yeah, sounds good. I trust you found a more suitable cover model for this episode, this uh, issue. Huh? Well, suitable is a relative term. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> the, uh, the, cover, the cover story this month is uh,
1: Air France 447. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that will be interesting to see. I'm looking for, I'll look forward to that. That's good. Um, but so, rest assured, there are a lot of aviation safety listeners who listen to this podcast because I've heard from any number of them on the uh, on the Twitters and the, you know, uh, who said, "Who the heck was that on the cover of the February issue?" <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is happening to that Aviation the, Safety Magazine? It's headed downhill. That's right. Uh, that's right. That was the February issue. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so uh, what's going on with you? I keep hearing from uh, Shellbetter and, and Amy and other Florida friends about how much it's raining in certain parts of fl- southern Florida, but not I, there, huh?
0: Not here. We got rain uh, overnight, I guess, Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, it rained, I think, a little bit the following or the preceding Friday, maybe, something like that. Um, but we haven't had anything like what's been going on apparently on the East Coast.
1: Yeah, borderline tropical storm or something like that, right? Like you know, no. a hurricane-ish thing that's dropping really? a lot of rain. No, I sitting I here, about, yeah, sitting here
0: in, in, you know in my urban hellhole here. I just haven't. Uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't have, haven't seen anything like her or anything like that so I I'm, you know, I'm glad that I'm glad they got through
1: it. i visited your house. It's neither urban hell nor a hole. So. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Hey, and I'm Jack Hodgson and I'm coming to you from the UCAP Winter HQ, uh half buried in the side of Garrison Hill on the fringes of Dover, New Hampshire. And uh where uh, it, you know, talk about measuring the snow with a micrometer. There's like hardly been any snow here either. You know, Dave and I have probably both jinxed our weather situation, and it's going to snow a foot in both places. But uh, um, it's a crazy winter that there's no snow really to speak of here. Uh, so. Yeah,
0: I would. I, it's 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 really odd. We've not seen any snow down here at all.
3: <laughs> yeah, and uh you know the the some of the uh, ski resorts are kind of getting uh, you know they they're having to find a new way to put those hills to use. Uh I understand one of them was uh, offering their ski hills as a substitute for a stair step machine. <laughs> uh, of course it's all one way. Uh yeah, well,
1: that used to be, that, that's the way it used to be in the old days, but now as long as it's cold enough, it doesn't need to rain, they'll make snow. You
3: yeah. know. But not if not not a, not above a certain temperature. I mean, the machine well, will make it, but the runs won't hold it up. Well, that's what I mean. It's got to be cold enough, but uh, and it yeah, has it's been up be here. Got to be cold enough, and it's not exactly that either. Uh, I mean, we had an unusually uh, an unusual cold snap in the last forty-eight hours mm-hmm. that did bring a, a, some snow flurries and almost created a glaze of ice in the dog dish and the in the bird bath. Uh, But other than that, we've been mostly in the 50s to middle 60s for most of the year, and it's bizarre.
1: Yeah, it's a weird winter all over. But, of course, in Europe, it's snowing like, you know, Minnesota.
3: Yeah, Uh, so it's like the the, the weather got displaced at a 45-degree angle from where it's supposed to be. Yeah,
1: something like that, right, yeah. So let's see now. I'm. Uh, what, wasn't there a movie like that? There was actually. I was yeah. thinking about that. You know, where like yeah. snowed in New York City and mm-hmm. buried the Statue of Liberty or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was a documentary too. I think. Oh yeah, that was that was a, that was a
3: mm-hmm. like a forty-eight hour ice age onset. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I know. It came on. Re- yeah. I know. I didn't actually well, see you, that movie, you, but. Uh, you know, if you you can't sell enough popcorn to support a real time ice age onset in a movie, so. Yeah, okay. That's right. So
1: I neglected to go out and get beer for tonight, and uh, and I'm sad to say <laughs> that the lovely Brittany doesn't have the most sophisticated taste in beer. So I'm drinking a can of Bush beer.
3: Oh, wow! That's that. You could do worse. Yeah. No, I, seriously, you not, could do not, worse. Not
0: not uh, without trying
1: hard, but yeah, you could do worse. <laughs> um. Yeah, but. <laughs> But the lovely Brittany paid for it, so how wrong can I go?
3: Well, that just ended up about six notches. Oh, man, I just
1: took my first sip of it. It's not outstanding. Oh. Okay. Is it cold? It's cold. Is it wet? It's both those things, yes. And it's beer. Yeah. And it's beer. And it cost you
3: how much?
0: And it, Yeah, that's thank what I'm you saying. very much. That's right. And the lovely Brittany is is uh, standing nearby, sitting nearby, willing to bring you another one. So Yeah,
3: dude, yeah. in what fantasy world? You know,
0: <laughs> work with this, okay? No, so no, that's time, not
3: the way it works. Take my word for time, it. Next time, remember to buy your own bloody beer. I know. I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. Well, I had to remember yesterday because I knew I wouldn't have time this afternoon. So we laid in a little bit of Shiner Black Lager and something from Colorado called Breckenridge. And it's a vanilla porter. And both these puppies hmm. are about 5% alcohol. It's like, hmm. yeah, it's, like, it's Wow, beer just keeps getting better and better. It's vanilla You're beer? A vanilla porter. It's got just a hint of vanilla in the brewing process. It's not like an ice cream cone, though. It's a dark beer, actually. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's because vanilla is dark colored.
0: Right? Well, I'm I'm sitting here with a with a dogfish head Indian Brown Ale. And and I have there you a, go. I have a nice little selection in the fridge right now. I found a nice little uh, liquor store that uh, really kind of on my uh, uh, one of my new one of my new little routine routes here of late, mm-hmm. and I've uh, been visiting there and and. Uh, um, Let's just say I'm well stocked.
1: Okay. Well good then. Then we're all more or less set. And uh, you know, if the bush beer lets me down, I've got a bottle of Jack Daniel's within reach, so I'll, I'll live. I'll I'll survive.
0: <laughs> I, right. Yeah, yeah. We, got, Epis, we got This is episode 273. Okay. Yeah. There we
3: go. Yeah. For the record. <laughs> for the record. Um <laughs> you know,
1: I'm sort of vaguely familiar with this airplane, but I I it's also unusual to me. The the Bugatti, the Bugatti one hundred, I guess, is what it's called.
3: That's because there was only one. Yeah. Well then why do they call it one uh, hundred? There weren't ninety
0: nine there weren't ninety nine previous models? Yeah.
3: So this is a uh, website, uh,
1: Bugatti one hundred p dot com. Uh it's about a project to uh build a replica of this, I guess, right? Yeah. Who, put, who, put this on, who put this on the list? Who knows more about this than I do, which is to say either one of you, I'm sure. But
3: uh, <laughs> I think you put it on the list, Jack. Uh, you're right, I did put it on the list. Okay, then. Well, no, no, no. But can... There's a few things that we could knock off the top of our head. One, this actual reproduction was on display in the member center tent at Oshkosh last year. Uh you know, it was before nearby when we right. were doing our middle of the week podcast there. Yep. Uh, right. the uh original design uh kind of I don't believe it ever flew. But it was going to be a racer uh uh just magnificent power plant had been designed and the airplane was being built around it. And then World War Two came along and that was kind of the end of it. So that airplane that we saw
1: that was partially built in the member center, that's the one that they're talking about in this website?
3: That's the one they're talking about in this website. Okay. And the prototype, by the way, I believe is in the EAA Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, The only one that was ever built by Bugatti. Yeah. Um, I did put it on the list. I put it on the list
1: because I was shown or told about this by listener Sven, who posted in the uh, forums, and he wrote, in case you didn't know, there's some very talented folks replicating the Bugatti found in the EAA Museum. He writes, I frequently check their progress on their website, and every few weeks they've posted something new. The site is amazing, and they've done a great job documenting their processes. It's worth the time reading about this fascinating
3: project. So yeah, it's Bugatti100p.com. Matter of um, fact, I could send you the link to a story in Air Venture Today, from about this very project.
2: Yeah,
1: you mm-hmm. should. We'll put it on the show notes. Tell me about this thing. So, are they planning to fly this this recreation,
3: or is this just a museum piece? I believe they're planning on flying it. I mean, that was the way I understood it. Uh you know, I, I I have now reread the Air Venture Today story. I vaguely remember editing it. So. Mm-hmm. I uh, got a really slick-looking gearbox here. This is uh, quite a piece of. Uh, well, I believe the original work. had counter-rotating props, concentric drive shafts. It was uh, going to be very technologically advanced.
1: Uh-huh. From the drawings and models we're seeing here, it does not appear to have that now. But
3: I'm not. 100% no, sure. I believe they're going to eschew that part of it, uh, in the interest of getting it flying and not adding God knows how much time it would take to machine the gearbox and get somebody to design and build the counter-rotating propeller set and yada, yada, yada. This is no small task, man. You're talking about scratch building an airplane for which there's no plans. Mm -hmm.
0: Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: No, it's a slick-looking airplane. It looks kind of like a cross between a glider, a Spitfire, and a V-tail Bonanza.
1: Yeah, but and the tail, not only the V-tail, but there's a sort of, a, you know, of a y- dorsal fin kind of thing there. I-tail. Say it again? It's more of a Y-tail. A Y-tail exactly. And That's a, a good a, ven- a ventral fin. Yeah. A vent- oh, I'm sorry, ventrals on I thought I was being very clever by <laughs> saying dorsal, but dorsal's on top is what you're telling me? Dorsals on top. Okay, ventral. Top. All right, yeah, cuz there's a cause there's a a, a a a vertical uh stabilizer of some sort that but that goes downward
3: from the right. uh, well, there's some there's, there. There was a question once about years ago. I heard that this design was the inspiration for uh, a design that, uh, that came along in about 1945 in Wichita, Kansas. Mm.
1: Oh, really. Here are uh, a couple of sentences from the website. Um, it says, Our mission is to build and fly a replica of the Bugatti 100P, the most elegant and technologically advanced airplane of its time. Our vision is to recreate and share with others the brief period in the late 1930s when eight, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize, Ettore, Ettore, Ettore Bugatti, and uh, Louis de Mange, or Mange, uh, De collaborated to create this singularly unique airplane. Our values include a commitment to honoring the memory of those who designed and built this plane. Very cool. There's a lot of information, as uh, Sven says. uh, A lot of information on this website about the project and uh, about the history involved here. So, uh, very cool. And so, according to this, they are going to try and fly it. That would be really neat. Yeah, that would be cool. Be very, very neat.
3: Well, that will actually get it beyond what the original was able to do. Yeah, because yeah, the original didn't fly. It's, that's what it says never here. Never flew, right. The, the original
1: did not fly. So, kind of cool. The best way to describe it is is
0: on one of the pages here. They call it an, an Art Deco masterpiece.
1: Yes.
3: I, I hadn't that's, thought of it that way, but Art Deco does. A,
0: yeah, That's a very good way to describe this airplane. And and yeah, it really like,
3: is. Yeah, And the symmetry in this, it's like if you put that tri-tail on a odd 6 bullet. And then uh-huh. gave it a wing just below the midpoint. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, put the engine behind the wing, put the cockpit in front of the wing, and ooh, baby! I I I would imagine this sucker would have screamed on that engine yeah, that they had planned I, for. I was
0: going to say, put tip tanks on it, and I want one. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> dude, um, dude, you're going to have to pare down the kit you like to travel with. A little bit because I don't think there's a lot of cockpit space here.
1: I wonder
0: what it's. going But to be it's like all. But, but it's all hollow. You can put stuff in the in the fuselage.
3: Oh, okay. It ain't all that hollow. Remember, there's a gearbox and a drive shaft and but that's an all. That's all. That's, that's,
0: that's all forward of the cockpit. You got to have the cockpit aft for weight and balance. So no, I you,
1: know.
3: Are you sure? Because that's not what it looks like in the pictures.
1: Well, the oh, engines at
3: the back of the wing in the fuselage. Oh, is it? And then, yeah, and then the drive shaft comes under the pilot's legs. And I believe the gearbox is up front. Uh so that they okay, can all well, you know, and then there's I'm, fuel tank ahead of the engine in the fuselage so that it's not on the CG. Yeah. Or I mean so it is on the CG, so it doesn't change the CG. Right, right. I'm, the wondering,
1: I'm wondering I'm if, wondering if anybody either back then or recently has done like any sort of wind tunnel tests on a model, because I wonder what this thing is how this handles. This could be a whole handful. Actually, okay. Now I'm I'm looking at the the there's some drawings or something.
0: I forget what I'm looking at here, but uh, here's a plan view of it and kind of a cutaway thing. There there are two engines in this thing. Now I understand the need for a a um, uh, uh, a gearbox and B more luggage space. <laughs>
3: okay. Two engines. Well, they huh? even have a link. Says AirVenture 2011. So. Yeah. Oh, um, is that the story? I know you sent me the link, but. Oh, yeah. yeah well, I think that's, that's their link picture. to their stuff from. Um, yeah. Washington. It's just
0: picture, pictures of, of their their exhibit. It's not just, uh, yeah. the. That's the
3: airplane that we looked at. Yep. Yeah. I remember walking around this puppy before we did our midweek episode. Mm hmm. Yeah. Thinking, hey, look, there you are in the picture. No, not really. <laughs> it, it, this puppy ought to scream. Yeah. And I bet it handles really well.
0: Hmm, we'll see. Uh, we'll yeah, see. I
1: I you know, you never know, right? You never
3: yeah. know.
0: I mean, it, it looks, you know, the old saying if if the airplane looks good, it will handle good, and that's certainly a truism and yeah. and, and it's been more correct more times than not, but there's always that exception. Yeah. And uh you know, it could could be one of these, you know, um is is too heavy for the wingspan or um the the forward tapered trailing edges don't work well for some reason, or there's not enough uh uh horizontal tail or who knows. But we'll find out and uh, hopefully, you know, um um
1: it won't be um a, a difficult lesson. Yeah. So and you, it's a tailwheel airplane. Yeah. So thank mm-hmm. you to listener Sven for calling our attention to this article and reminding us yeah. of something that we already knew or at least had seen way back well, when. Well, I- interesting website, and that's. And, but yeah, it's, really, it's, yeah. it's
0: it's great to see uh, you know this project moving forward. You, you, don't don't let me you know uh, burst anyone's bubble here, but you see a lot of projects at AirVenture each year, and you see a lot of of uh, concepts and ideas and whatnot, and, and some some of them you'll see again, a lot of them you just never do see again. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, this this is one of them. It, well, it looks like we'll see
3: again. Yeah. Yep. And in our defense, we we don't see the show the same way as the real people. It's, well, yeah, there's that's some true. truth to that. Well, we, and we, we just, in some ways we get a better view, but in other ways we miss it. For some things, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we do. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's always a string attached. Yeah, that's, that's right.
1: Exactly right. That string being <laughs> leading right back to your screen where things have to be edited. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Next gen. So, David, you like this video game? Um, no, it's not a video game. I know it's not a video game, but uh, what this next gen interactive
3: map? I played with it a little bit and couldn't quite crack the code. Um, well, you know. the, uh, the you know the this this is a story and the technology behind any equipment you got to go. It, it's a recurring theme through my work life. So, when something like this pops up, and I go, "Wow, this is apt to actually answer questions for people." Uh, Long as they know what their questions are asking, uh, so you click on the ADSB button, and these are the operational sites for the ground station. There's more than that installed; they're just not all operational yet. Mm-hmm. Which means that Amy's system should work at all those areas mm-hmm. within range of them. Uh, there's also, and I'm not sure it's shown here, uh, 51 terminal areas. Uh, terminal approach control facilities that all have ADSB now piped into their radar screen and working, you know, shoulder to shoulder with good old radar. Radar. Uh, so you got where you can get advisory services from ADSB. You click on enroute, and it kind of backs up the ADSB map. Where there's ground stations, you can get enroute stuff. Uh, the terminal map shows it. All the different places that have terminal services that are routed right into the controller screen, these other places, like in route they're independent of the controllers that's where you can get a d s b stuff right off the ground or airplane to airplane uh, It shows a big swath of the middle of the country they're not active yet. The stations have been installed, but everything doesn't come online all at one time. Mm-hmm. And you've even got this map down here in the lower left, if you do ADSBNN route, that shows the coverage areas in Alaska that were wired years ago as part of the Capstone Project. That was one of the two test areas. Right. Interestingly enough, the Ohio River Valley test area is not shown here. And that kind of surprises me because that's actually actively being used uh... by well, there it is, the terminal service provider Louisville at Louisville International. It shows no, up under the terminal yeah. services because UPS is using, using that puppy. Maybe but, I'm
0: yeah. not using this this web page right, but I don't I don't see a whole lot of um, stuff popping up telling me. You know, I get I, I click on Next Gen Demos and I get a blue dot in the middle of the screen that. Uh, apparently is somewhere in Colorado or something. Um click on the ADSB button. And I know there are many more um, um, areas of the country where ADSB is operational than um uh the southern coast of Alaska. Uh so I don't I don't I'm not sure what this is trying to demonstrate here Timmy, Um if it's if it's trying to tell me that a d s b is available in my area, which I already know it's not doing a very good job,
1: <clears throat> yeah, so. you know what i i'm I'm just opening the page again now, um and it, it, this time it's taking longer to load, and it's got a little loading progress bar here that I didn't notice before. I wonder if maybe yours mine didn't load before, and yours didn't load this time well, and does it start out with a little but big button that says "click to begin? No, not really. I'm, I'm reloading now, which
0: means you'll probably never hear from me again. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: No, no, you'll be fine.
0: Uh, so, uh, yeah, okay, now I'm I'm getting a loading button.
1: There you go. I think that was what okay, I missed now, earlier okay. too.
0: Now, now I'm seeing more dots. Yeah, that's there we
1: did. go. Well, that's the trick. For whatever yeah, reason, so, it didn't load in both of our cases earlier, and because uh, uh, I'm seeing a lot more data, like David says now. than I good. Did
0: so what we're saying, and what you're basically saying, is the FA can't even design a website to describe ADSB. Okay.
3: <laughs> well, if you click on the radio station button that's just above the continental U.S. map, that's all the little dots that show the operational ground stations that are part of the network. Mm-hmm. And it, then if you click on the en route map... That's sort of over, over just above Michigan, right?
1: Yeah, okay. just above uh, Wyoming. I we got a whole bunch of sectors around the fringes
3: of the country. And where did, I had, oh, advisory services, in route, radio stations, shows you one thing. Now, click advisory services, and then in route, below that, and that'll show you the map coverage that goes along with those stations right. that show up under the station button. Right. There are more stations than that installed. They're not operational yet. Right. That's what they're filling it in. Yeah, uh, and the actual terminal services—that's the fifty-one sites that comes up in the uh, when you click the terminal button. That's where you can get yeah. terminal approach services via your ADS-B link. Uh, yeah. and the Florida controllers covered, are seeing huh? the same thing you are. Yeah, and Florida is really covered in that on that particular mm-hmm. category. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. one of the earlier areas to go active, actually uh and if you click on the en route button you'll see the all of the gulf of mexico is covered now right right which is a hell of a technological achievement because that involved putting a whole host of those ground stations and radar uh, uh, remotely deployed weather observation stations on oil platforms mm-hmm. so that ADSB equipped helicopters that serve those platforms can now get IFR services from the uh, TRACONs that serve those areas, Houston, uh, Jackson Center, and Miami. They can do IFR separation out there now like they could never do before this went online. at the be- I think it was February of 2010.
1: Mm-hmm. So, David, when you get your new airplane, yeah, you'll I, put ADSB in it.
3: I'm sorry, Jeb, what?
1: Jeb, stand by one moment. Uh, this is Jack. Uh, David, when you get your new airplane, you'll put ADSB mm-hmm. in it.
3: Yeah, yeah, in and out. I'm sorry. You in and out. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Pretty obviously, Jeb. I'm it's sorry I interrupted you.
3: Go ahead. I, I'd like to have. Colli- I've always wanted a collision avoidance system in the airplanes that I've owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the least expensive way that I can do that now is ADSB, and by the time I get it wired in, it'll cover. I, I'll get the coverage in probably sixty percent of the places that I fly and it'll just get more you know the the percentage will just get better as time goes by. Yeah, yeah. Jeb, I'm sorry, jump in here.
0: That's okay. I was going to say for any of our listeners who are trying to to make this work and looking at this uh the site um the first time you load it if it doesn't have a a a uh a button pop up that says loading and then a percent uh a right. speedometer to it uh, you're doing something wrong or the site is doing something wrong. You've pretty much got to do that to see that uh, load and load the flash uh, simulation here before you can see what we're talking about. I've had to reload the page now twice. Really? Okay. Um So, yeah. it, again, you know, it gives me a real warm fuzzy. Uh, if, the, if the FAA can't even handle flash, um, but, you know, I don't want to go there. Okay.
3: <laughs> well, on the next-gen demos, yeah you roll over each one of those buttons and it tells you what demo is going on at that site. Yeah. Like wake turbulence research in Seattle and San Francisco, uh emissions research in the Asia Pacific, three-dimensional path arrival management in Denver. Uh they're already doing that actively in Louisville if you've got it if you're flying a UPS airplane at least. Wake turbulence research in St. Louis Surface management and weight turbulence in Memphis, Dallas, Fort Worth, staff next gen towers demonstrations. <laughs> Interesting.
1: Cool stuff. Everybody should take a look. If you're at all interested mm-hmm. in ADSB and what the scope of the whole thing is, it's uh if you're
3: gonna be flying in twenty twenty, some of this is gonna be required. 2020 people just don't i'm sorry i just keep this just makes me laugh
1: every time people talk about this the world is going to be so different in 2020 none of this is going to apply mark my words anyways hey listen um a miracle happened i'm serious a miracle happened the u.s congress passed an faa budget an faa authorization authorization bill did you
3: feel did the earth move for you it, uh, man, I haven't been this happy since the last Guy Fox Day. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm not sure if I'd characterize
1: myself as being happy, but I am astounded, and, and I guess pleased, finally, you know. And um, I, until I put together the list for us tonight and saw some of the things you guys were calling attention to, I thought that there was just about everything good about this bill. There are apparently a couple things that are a little bit,
3: bit puzzling, but... Uh, there, there's, um, it, it, it's a flawed bill. That's it, one of the reasons why it passed. But it's got a lot were of good some stuff. People in willing it. to accept some flaws, and some people wanted to add some yeah. flaws that others were ex- willing to accept. Yeah, it's got some. It's got some good stuff
1: in it, though. You know, I mean, or it, or you know, doesn't have some bad stuff in it, right? No user fees.
3: No right. dramatic increases on fuel taxes. Oh, uh, no, they stayed. They all stayed the same. And the funny thing is. There, there was opposition to raising even a penny of uh, fuel excise taxes uh, from some politicians who apparently were tone deaf to the fact that the industry was asking them to. The airlines and GA business aviation were all asking them to raise it a little bit so that they could fund next gen and some other improvements faster. Yeah. So those didn't make it in. No user fees, yay
1: yeah um so let's see what else uh uh they uh defined a new job that we're trying to get for jeb uh the uh, next gen czar and uh <laughs> that was, i think that was jeb snorting i'm not sure <laughs>
3: I'm, that didn't mute <laughs> um Oh, yeah, man, I, dude, with, with, I had no sooner seen that next-gen czar creation than I zapped your resume off to a friend of mine at 800 Independence. <laughs> I, you were who I thought of. You know the neighborhood. Yeah. Um there's apparently some
1: language in here, and you guys tell me whether this is just kind of a of an a, a empty gesture or if this is really going to help, but there's apparently some language in here that mandates trying to make things a little bit better for the DC-3 airports. Um, Listener uh, Royski called our attention to uh, one part of the bill that uh, basically says that that, that, uh, no later than 180 days, da-da-da, a plan will be submitted. Um, Ironically, it's supposed to be submitted by the administrator of the FAA, which is kind of a whole thing right now but uh, um, the contents of the plan will be a plan the plan shall outline specific changes to the dc metropolitan area special flight rules area that will decrease operational impacts and improve general aviation access to airports in the national capital region that are currently impacted by the zone so i mean
3: is that kind of language real or is that just a, a hand wave oh it's real uh, and whoever insisted that that be in there will, if they're worth their lobbying donations, uh, actually keep up on this and, and hold the FAA's feet to the fire. What it will do in an operational sense that it improves things, uh, tune in next year. Yeah. Um,
1: now what's this about, uh, David, you put an item on the list that uh, the, uh, the funding bill speeds path for more U.S. drone flights. What's that all about?
3: Well, there's money to be made in the drone industry, okay? There is no part of aviation experiencing more R&D effort and more venture capital investment than if you say it's a drone remotely piloted or, or autonomously flying vehicle uh... and everybody smells money and they spill money out of the pentagon in particular uh... they spill money from law enforcement uh... and to some of the folks in that industry the FAA has just not understood how important it is for them to have the kind of access that they need to have so that they can do the kind of business that they want to do Now, the safety and traffic clearance issues and separation standards and all that stuff, that's really not their issue. This is free enterprise trying to work here. Mm -hmm. So they are pushing Congress. They've got people in Congress pushing to, I like this, uh, broaden access, integrating a wide range of so-called unmanned aerial vehicles with commercial and general aviation by September 2015. Uh, they want the FAA to come up with a plan to make this happen, and I'm not sensing that they're really all that interested in, in the technological accomplishments that need to go with this to make them equally safe with nearsighted pilots.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
3: Yeah, okay. Well, I guess we'll... Still have to keep an eye on them.
1: Now, you know, a, a number of different listeners have been have jumped on the fact that I sort of wondered whether or not if we ever got an FA reauthorization, whether this podcast would poof out of existence. <laughs> um, but you know, and I, and it, it's important but we no longer have anything to
0: talk about this will be our last episode no no no, no
1: don't say that you're gonna freak people out no no i am confident i am con- fully confident that the that the federal government will manage to come up with more foolishness that will keep us going for another five years if need there, be there, there so, is that yeah there. so um I, I don't think anybody has to worry you know except us who are stuck continuing to build this podcast so that we don't die or something like that i don't know. Anyways. know. Um, did the president sign the bill yet? I haven't seen that happen, no. Okay. That's the remaining thing, and uh, um, we don't have to worry I'm about the I'm not sure not that they would
3: have a signing ceremony for that, mm. but I would imagine that there would be some notice given. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. But, yeah, no user fees in it. Uh, we got uh, got some crazy, funking labor relations bills language in it that was totally non it's sequitur to the transportation bill, but that's what happens in the sausage making process that's called legislating. Yeah,
1: Jeb, you've been a little quiet. Do you have any thoughts on this whole thing? Is this uh... No, I don't. It's it's a long time coming,
0: of course, um, and there are some good things in here. Um, the the, uh, the two big bugaboos, as as I recall, uh, which held up the bill, were uh, uh, provision regarding. Um, um, labor organization, and another provision regarding um, um, the uh, essential air service program. Both of those are resolved as they are, as Congresses want to do, via compromise. Um, as far as the, um, the DC-3 provision, uh, I've seen that stuff before. Um, Five dollars says, it, 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 A, they'll blow through the deadline, and B, there won't be any, any uh, meaningful recommendations to come out of that. Um, some of the other stuff, um, uh, you know, it's kind of half a loaf or a full loaf. I, I really haven't had a chance to sit down with the text of the bill. But the punchline is, yeah, they finally got a bill. Yeah. And, and maybe this is a new precedent here. Maybe we won't have to go through this. Maybe we won't have to spend six years, five and a half, in a podcast, you know, kind of beating this drum. Not that we can take any credit for this, but uh, um, it, the whole thing is just, you know, uh, a little bit nonsensical.
3: Yeah, I'm well, it even it it even has a little hint of corporate welfare in it. Just oh, I'm sure. So you, so you know, just so the chamber of commerce doesn't get its shorts in a knot, that the the FAA is probably not going to move any faster on this drone issue than they will on relieving the DC three of their security issues. But here's the paragraph to encourage airlines to eventually. And I like this. The deadline's 2020, kid, to eventually rely entirely on the proposed satellite-based system. The bill, that's ADSB b and NextGen, the bill also authorizes creation of a fanfare, trumpets please, first of its kind federal loan guarantee program, specifically aimed at funding new airline navigation equipment. And that airline navigation is hyphenated. Not for new airlines, not for new airliners, but the new equipment for the airliners. Uh, I've been trying to get an answer to the question is there a loan guarantee program for the rest of us? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. Anyways, I would like to think that the rest of us count as much as. The airline day, business, day, since we fly day. to more airports and have, conduct more flights and own more airplanes. Yeah.
0: Have another scotch.
1: Yeah, I
3: know. <laughs> um,
1: so I, I didn't realize there's one other item that was on the list that relates to this, and I didn't make the connection when I was pulling the list together. Um, from, I believe this is Brent Blue's, uh, Dr. Blue's site. Uh, the, yes. Apparently there's yes. through-the-fence uh, 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 protections in the Good. bill as well. Good. Can you? Can one of you summarize this? David, you found it. Do you Have you digested this?
3: uh the gist of it is the uh, uh the language was what the association asked for and that's my hedge against saying i don't know exactly the details uh but it, it to refresh it became an issue they say about five years ago uh and i guess that's right it was something that we talked about fairly early in the podcast uh the art RTTF, residential through the fence language, protects airports from losing airport improvement grant monies from the FAA due to past, current, or future residential through the fence agreements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the FAA can't look at that. And, and this this grew out of a couple of FAA staffers, uh, I think a Northwest Mountain region, that got their shorts in a knot that. Public airports that were receiving public monies were allowing these private property owners to come through a fence without some kind of security control. Well, actually, they had those. Well, with unduly, they shouldn't be getting that right now. On the other side of these, some of these same airports were businesses that had business through the fence agreements, but those were okay. There was this blowing snow about the residential ones were inherently uh, non-compatible. And this is where Bender jumps up and say, "Bite my shiny metal yeah, appendage." Okay. So um, we'll we'll try to recognize that uh, if it's good for business, it's good for residences. Uh, it you know, airplane people living next to airports should in general be considered a good thing. Yeah.
1: Yep. And uh, just to kind of uh, summarize what David sort of said here, um, this is from the uh, ThroughTheFence.org website, which is uh, our uh, buddy Brent, or your buddy, sort of a little bit my buddy, but mostly you guys' buddy, Brent Blue, Dr. Blue, um, who's been running this organization for a while now and uh, and lobbying for this kind of stuff. First couple of paragraphs here, he says, victory at last. He says, residential Through the Fence protection in FAA reauthorization. And so uh, he's pretty happy about it in these uh, in this language on the website. So, so it's and, a good bill. And, well, it's really... This is not not just you know, This is not just uh,
0: you know a good policy uh, um, decision on the part of the federal government. This is really a, a kind of a, uh, um, I don't know, a, a poster child for a grassroots aviation-oriented policy here, here. change that uh, Brent, uh, to his great credit, has kind of taken the bull by the horns here. I'm sure there were others involved, but Brent was the inspiration. He was the, the motivating factor uh, behind all this. And, again, it's really a poster child for how to, how to kind of take the bull by the horns here and, and change policy, and it's a great little blueprint, and I, I hope uh, uh, some other people uh, down, the, uh, down the path here will, will pick this up and use it
3: yeah and we we hope they found suitable new positions for the two people that got this stirred up to begin with, yeah. and that they 're no longer in a position of uh, influence over this kind of airport policy. Yeah. We wish them well wherever they are
1: yeah. uh, we 're starting to reach the end of our allotted time here i 'm um, going to start jumping around here uh, there 's a really intriguing piece of video um, of from uh, the i i 'm looking at it on the AOPA online site. Um, of a uh, a mission that was flown by a, uh, I believe it was a cAP airplane uh, probably a one hundred and eighty two of some sort um, to be a target for an f sixteen intercept practice mission and uh, it 's pretty interesting video uh, as uh, this uh, this, uh, this writer um, i think i 'm not sure Dave Hirschman is the author of the piece i 'm not sure if he was the pilot. Um, or on board the airplane. I'm, I think he rode along,
0: and yeah. um, it's, uh, I'm sure there was a CAP-qualified uh, pilot in the left seat. Yeah. But, it, but the aircraft was a uh, Skyvan, I think it's called, uh,
1: I'm sorry, Gyps Aero G8 Airvan. Oh, ah, okay. But um, uh, the video uh, just shows, you know, so this is basically what what a GA pilot who just got himself in a really bad spot would be seeing if he got intercepted by an F-16. And and they, they show the different levels levels of intercept you know sort of like they do the kind of you know easy intercept and theoretically you notice them right away but if you don't notice them or react then they do a little bit more aggressive intercept and there's like three or four different levels and it gets pretty pretty exciting it looks to me like Um, and uh, a pretty interesting piece of video and it's just you know whether or not you like the policy it just goes to show you you don't want to get yourself messed up in one of these situations i'll tell you uh, my my flight bag has got,
3: you know, the, the little handy-dandy intercept card instructional that uh, was being handed out at conventions and air shows, and I believe AOPA even had a printed-out-yourself version on their website at one point, uh, back when all the stuff was still fairly new and scary. Uh, I'm still not sure, though, how many aircraft with two Communications transmitters and receivers still fly around with one twenty-one point five perpetually tuned into the number two. I don't know. Well, you're, apparently, you're supposed to, right? You number. are supposed to. Yeah. 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 I've been I've, I've been around three or four airplanes in the last month or six weeks where they had. you know, they were it was, they were old, uh, old old wafer switch tuned radios. You know, they had crystals and these these funny little dial things. So whatever frequency you tuned into was always visible in the little window. The little mechanical numbers go around, you know what I mean? Not an electronic readout. So you could look at the airplane when it's all shut down and go, that's the frequencies that they were on the last time the radios were on. And in all these instances, it was like neither one of the radios was on 121.5, and about the third time, I asked the guy, you know, he goes, oh, well, I go back and forth. I always leave the old frequency in one radio and then go to the new one in case I have to go back. I went, ah, okay. I always just wrote that down, but yeah. that would work, too. Yeah.
1: Um. So, yeah, check out the video for a real uh, – it, it, It's if nothing else, it's just interesting to watch. And and it's a bit of a lesson about, you know, what you don't want to ever see while flying near D.C. <laughs> Rhymes. I,
3: I flying any I don't want to see it well, I wouldn't mind seeing an F eighteen or sixteen or fifteen or fourteen or anything else off my wing uh I'm doing an air to air photo mission. Uh any other circumstance, uh, probably not so much. Shout outs. Let's see now. Uh David, you got one right here. I do. I do. Our old buddy Turbo Ed. No. We met. We've all met Turbo Ed. We've had lunch with Turbo mm-hmm. Ed. He's, you know, he's uh, one of the more frequent participants on the forums. And well, uh, EAA's website every month offers a downloadable photograph to be your desktop as a calendar wallpaper thing. And this month, February, Turbo Ed's got a shot there. Uh, really nice photograph. If. Uh Shows a uh shows a uh, little home built airplane. Oh Kit Mo- Kit Fox model four on floats at the vet seaplane base at Oshkosh. Yeah. He uh, a really uh, pretty sp- picture.
1: Yeah, we definitely saw Turbo. We saw Turbo at uh he came to the uh Sebring meetup and uh he also came over to Hidden River one afternoon and mm-hmm. uh, hung out for mm-hmm. a while and, and took both Jeb and I for a ride in his uh, in his RV and uh, mm-hmm. that was a lot of well, fun. fun.
2: Yeah, yeah,
3: that was good. And uh, have, but, having a rudimentary familiarity with shooting pictures like this, th- he did a really nice job. It is a very nice picture. It's and, very uh, nice.
1: And and congrats to him I for shot, uh,
3: for getting it uh,
1: recognized that way.
3: Uh, my fr- my and, shot to EAA for picking it up. It, well,
1: yeah. My shout-out is uh, hopefully most people will hear this uh, podcast, this episode, in time. Uh, We're going to be having another one of our Nashua uh, Airport uh, brunch meetups in a couple of weeks. On uh, Saturday, February 25th, 2012, at 10 a.m., uh, a bunch of us are going to be gathering at National New Hampshire's Midfield Cafe to uh, to uh, hang out and drink some coffee and maybe have some breakfast or lunch or whatever you know suits your fancy and uh, talk about airplanes. And we usually end up going walking around on the field uh, as well, looking at airplanes and comparing notes uh, on the the ones that people have flown in on. So. Uh, uh, and and i am already gotten RSVPs from a whole bunch of people. This could be a big crowd, so uh, it, it'll be fun. So that's Saturday, uh, February 25th at uh, Nashway. You just don't need to RSV, uh, RSVP or anything. Just uh, show up at uh, just you know, 10 o'clock on the deck there right in front of the restaurant. Anything else? Any other shout-outs? Wish I could be there
0: uh real quick i uh, i don't want this to sound like a plug or anything but uh rick durden um uh com- old long-time compatriot of mine and uh um, also editor of a um, uh, sister publication a uh, publication which is sister to aviation safety called IFR refresher came through with a uh you know in, a, in a pinch for me uh, last week on a, on a project and i just want to uh, um, thank him publicly for that. And, uh, um, um, it worked out and everybody's happy. And I, I, again, thanks, Rick Durden.
1: Very cool. Anybody else? No? Yeah. No? Uh,
3: Bueller? Bueller? Did you see the Bueller, or uh, the, the, did you see oh, the Ferris right, Bueller I, I, commercial? I, I do have a quick shout out. Okay, go ahead. Steve Shapiro and Fareed Guillaume. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay, uh, you know, a lot of us, you know, including many listeners to the podcast, get newsletters from various outfits. And Friday's a big day. You get one from EAA, you get one from AOPA. Some of you get one from, you know, who knows else. Well, today's AOPA newsletter had a link from a little story. Uh, written by our e- former EAA friend Steve Shapiro, about flying his Arrow Piper Arrow from Oshkosh into in- an Indianapolis area airport last weekend, the day before Super Bowl, and he visited some of the airplane uh, airports around there and enjoyed some of the parties, and then flew back Monday. And his sidekick on the trip, so that he could get some IFR IFR instruction, and so he didn't get stuck because he wouldn't have gotten there without. Our old EAA radio buddy, no longer with the association, Fareed Guillot. So shout out to both guys. I'm jealous, man. I've never been to an FBO Super Bowl party, but it sounds yeah, like yeah, yeah.
1: That must
0: have nicely been nicely cool. done.
1: Yeah, that must have been cool. All right, then definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, Jeb Burnside, uh, thanks for joining us. Jeb's a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the internet? Aviationsafetymagazine.com,
0: uh, jeburnside.com, aea.net, sometimes on uh, avweb.com. And if you can't find me on all that stuff, uh, just use the Google machine. I'm sure that uh, um, uh, all that stuff with the goats and the teenage cheerleaders is scrolled off the
2: bottom. <laughs> no, no,
3: hey, last, last time I did a Google on him, uh, I was amazed at the old wanted posters that showed up.
1: Oh, uh, okay. See, now, see, I was going to stay serious for just a moment longer um so uh, both you guys i have been meaning to ask you guys this question um uh, for a while now i apologize for not warning you but uh jeb do you have any uh, any of your freelance articles that have come out recently that you want to point people in the direction of
0: well uh, AEA.net i mentioned and, and i think dave mentions also as uh, as an outlet um uh, uh had a, a piece uh which will appear let me look here real quick In the uh, March issue of AEA's um, uh, Avionics News magazine, talking about the Air France 447 uh, accident and uh, what lessons there might be in there for the avionics industry. I did a similar piece for uh, Aviation Safety's March issue um, on Air France 447, but talking mainly about the lessons for uh, pilots. And... uh, Uh, there's a lot of lessons in this whole thing and and we're not finished learning about it yet. Yeah.
1: yeah. I got a chance to taste a little bit of that when I was down there, that article and uh, Uh Uh looks like good stuff. So people should check it out. Thank you. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer an aviation journalist and the U S editor for London's world aircraft sales magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet?
3: Well, I've got something in the pipeline that I believe is coming out in the March Sport Aviation. It's a little one-page hangar cave uh, photo story that uh, I shot a few weeks ago. Uh, find me on avbuyer dot com, aea dot net, aviation safety magazine dot com. I, I, you know, I, I I'm one of the one of the uh, trolls that labors for Mister Burnside on that one, and it and it's fun being that kind of troll. Uh, as far as anything else coming out, you know, I'm not even sure what month I'm working on right now. So figuring <laughs> yeah, out, yeah, really, what's next in the pipeline—that is the is problem. It,
0: is it already February? Know, what yeah. is going on, man? I like it. Well, it, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, man. you
3: know, I did, did not self-promotion here, and I can't talk about them yet. But for some reason, this week was like a little gold mine of past pitches mm-hmm. coming home. Yeah, three of them that I'd made weeks ago. And one that turned around in eighteen hours, and you know, and I, I just feel like going out and having an extra scotch and a cigar because now I know that all those little things are going to get done, and some are down the way that I'll get a byline on a check. Yeah,
0: I, I just don't. I just don't. I don't. I just don't believe that because Dave, you always want to go out and have an extra scotch and a cigar.
3: <laughs> I was working on a similar
1: <laughs> joke. Anyways, well, let's keep in touch with you guys about uh, about other projects that you've been involved in. We want to learn learn uh, some of these other things you're working on that you always tease us about. And uh, and I have an ulterior motive here. I'll get to that in a second. I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Um, I've been talking for years now about the. Uh, Columns that I write uh, under the title "Around the Field" at uh, at uh, Air Venture each summer, and uh, I've finally gotten rolling on a project that I've been thinking about for some time now, and that is to collect up a lot of these columns from the past and republish them as uh, as a series of books. I've published the first uh, as an ebook uh, that's available now uh, through Amazon. If you have a Kindle, um, either a Kindle device, or you can get the Kindle software on your uh, computer, on your laptop, uh, on your iPad, on that kind of thing. And, uh, the first volume of Around the Field is available through the uh, Kindle eBookstore. Uh, so go in there and search. Best way to find it is search. Ironically, searching for Around the Field doesn't bring you straight to it. So if you search for Air Venture, uh, you will get a, cl- a, a small selection of eBooks, and one of which is Around the Field. So I'd love people to take a look and see what they think. Big cool. Yeah, th- I, I, you know, I've, I've looked at that a little bit too. It's, it's a nice little project that Jack's put together, and, uh, I look forward to seeing more and more of that. Thank you. Thank you. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Uh, Thanks to Mike Morgan, to Roy Searle, to Randy Dufault, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips and other audio bits that we use. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. So there's a listener who has been telling me for recently that for years now, he has been putting his children to sleep by putting earphones on them and playing the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast to them. And I, That's not I mean, necessarily we,
0: something I wanted
1: to hear. No, see, this is somewhat hard. He insists that this is calming, and that
3: their kids love it. But that they always giggle when they hear Dave go "wiki wiki." So, and, and this is just in the interest of disclosure: uh, the uncontrolled airspace podcast is not FDA approved as a somnolent inducer. Although any of our any of the women in our lives will argument <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: there's that too but, but it, I, I just i just want to know if these children have ever asked their parents what fugly
3: means yeah, i, <laughs> I want to know if the parents if, if the parents are fielding questions that, like dad when can i start flying lessons dad what's an aileron dad why why, why do men like joysticks <laughs> and, 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 Dad, when can I get my own scotch? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, listen, the podcast may or may not uh, act as a health aid, but flying does. David, what were you going to say? Oh, man, the best way to old age and happiness is go fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. Hey, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. A-M-F-F-N.